Radiolab is supported by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Radio Lab is supported by Mint Mobile. This spring, cleaning up your wireless bill is easy thanks to Mint Mobile. Right now, Mint Mobile is offering affordable premium wireless plans with unlimited talk, text, and data plans when you purchase a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan options, go to mintmobile.com slash radiolab. That's mintmobile.com slash radiolab. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month, for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Uh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. Yeah. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. This is Radio Lab. And today, a story from our very own Molly Webster. So, yeah, so today we're talking about a medical mystery. Oh, good. Let me put them on my wool cap then. Because. <laughs> Oh, he really is. Of... He really is putting on a wool cap, folks. Okay. Okay. Um, a medical mystery. Yeah. Starts with a woman. Hello. Hi, I'm trying to reach Joveria, please. Named Joveria Faruqi. This is Joveria. How are oh you, Molly? She works at a hospital. At a teaching hospital in Pakistan. In Karachi. It's uh, the Al Khan University. And uh, I'm a medical doctor specialized in uh, medical microbiology. Joveria works in the hospital lab. And so when someone has an infection, she gets sent, you know, some blood or urine or something. And she tries to figure out which bug is causing the problem. So the very first month that I was in the lab. In the fall of 2014. uh, The third week of October, I found three bugs. In the blood of three different patients. Which looked Exactly the same. And like nothing she'd ever seen before. Creamy in texture. It had a whitish rim and had a, another ring of light brown around it. A white center and, and very, very white. It's sort of like when you put UV light on, on white and it sort of shines mm. with a bluish tinge. And what she saw wasn't a bacteria or a virus. It was actually... A fungus. A yeast. But beyond that, she sort of had no idea what it was. I shared it with all my friends who were working in other labs, and I asked them if they had encountered something like this. Hmm. And they all said no. But the patients were all very, very sick. Yeah, well, so uh, what happened is that we started seeing patients with fever, high white cell counts. So the three patients those samples had come from were all at the same hospital under the care of this guy. Dr. Faisal Mahmood, I'm an infectious disease specialist here at the Aachen University. And all three of them were patients in the ICU. 
older patients, folks who've been in the hospital for a week or two weeks. You know, with patients like that, they definitely deal with fungal infections from time to time. So, so the symptoms were really nothing, no, nothing spectacular, nothing um, uh, weird. But when you found out that they all came down with the same mysterious fungus all at the same time? When it was identified, we're like, okay, that's, that's weird. Maybe some kind of coincidence? Uh, but, but then... While I was looking at those, I encountered yet another one. Another one popped up. Exactly the same yeast. And another one popped up. In the same hospital, but this time not from the ICU. And I thought, oh my God. Which was really strange because they had never seen this fungus before and suddenly it's popping up all over the hospital. I would have been okay if it was just one case. Or, or two cases in a whole year. That's all right. However, to encounter them in a, whole, in a cluster is alarming. You know, what, what's it doing in our hospital, behaving so angrily and killing people off? I mean, two of our patients had died by then. You know, we, we just sort of kept seeing them tuck, 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 tuck. Um, I think within six months, we had like 19 cases. And by then, six months in, eight of the patients had died. So this fungus is pretty nasty. Yeah, I mean, the people who get it seem to have an other sicknesses as well. But but once you got it, it the mortality rate's like 20 to 60 percent. Oh, Damn. And that's about the same time when um, uh, Javeria sent some strains to uh, the U.S. CDC. Javeria basically sent them an email and just said, you know, hey, will you look at this thing? And this is when the mystery of this fungus went way, way beyond one hospital in Pakistan. We were informed by colleagues in Pakistan that they were having a large Outbreak. One of the guys that got that email eventually was Tom Chiller. Chief of the Mycotic Diseases Branch here at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia. And he and his colleagues uh, pretty quickly identified the fungus as... Candida auris. They said it's Candida auris. And I'm like, Candida what? I was like, never heard of Candida auris before. Now, Candida is kind of a big group of fungus. Uh, it lives on our skin and in our gut and can cause yeast infections and thrush in babies. But this particular Candida was totally new. It was first isolated from an ear infection of a Japanese patient. And that was in 2009, and it was really just causing some sort of goopy goop to leak out of this woman's ear. On the skin, where we know some candida species can be, and we didn't think, honestly, much of it. Until... Six years later, they hear from Joveria that this Candida auris is getting into people's blood and causing serious infections. You know, horrible bloodstream infections and even death. And so he thought, okay, this thing that we saw once that we did not think was a big deal is now killing people. So what's going on? And so he started poking around and he came across reports of Candida auris outbreaks in South Korea, in India. And South Africa had described clusters. And we figured, we found out that it's, it's popping up all over the world. And actually, while looking into this... Colleagues from London were, 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 were talking to us about a very similar phenomenon with the same organism. A hospital in London had an outbreak to the point where they had to close their intensive care unit for a period of months. So what we saw were, were that, that, that there were essentially four different clades, for lack of a better word, that were emerging in three 
different continents all about at the same time. Meaning it wasn't like it started in one place and Mm -hmm. then went to all these other places. It couldn't be explained by travel. It couldn't be explained by, you know, by the fact that, that these were in some way related, except that they were the same species of organism. They truly were emerging at around the same time in four parts of the world. So the big question that arises out of this moment is, why now? Yeah. Wait, just so I make sure I'm getting this. You have one fungus appearing in four totally different parts of the world? Simultaneously. Simultaneously. Weird. It's definitely not normal. No, it's absolutely (laughs) abnormal. And, you know, people around the world are trying to figure out how this happened, why it happened, why is it? So this is Snigda Valbanani, and she was part of the team at the CDC that was tracking the fungus and trying to figure out what was going on. So initially we thought, like, could, is it possible as some contaminated medical product or something that got distributed? Something that got distributed to these hospitals, but then they thought, Four different hospitals on three different continents? I mean, you, you don't expect it to be that worldwide. So it's like, scratch that. Maybe it's the way, you know, different antifungal drugs have been used around the world. Um, like, we all use, you know, antifungals in our body, but the more important thing is, is farms using antifungals where they spray their crops. So it's like, maybe the fungus are adapting to fungicides and it's just getting stronger. So it would it be that, that the farmers are training the fungus and those fungus are then somehow getting away from the farm and into the hospitals? or Yeah. Okay. But that still doesn't explain why it would happen in all these separate places at this one particular moment. Why now? Right. You need something that was happening to all of these fungus in different places at the same time. That's why people are looking for more of this, not just environment, but sort of a bigger picture uh, ecological analyses. Meaning what? Well, um, I just, uh, at this point, feel like I should just start talking about dinosaurs. Um, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. It is, yeah, it is a little bit of a detour, but I promise it will pay off. I mean, no, it's my relationship with dinosaurs in general. So I'm yeah. like, oh, God, here we go. There is a lot of history there. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage your hosts for this evening, Jan Aberrett and Robert Krolwich! But trust me, it'll be worth it. Uh, to loop everybody in, um, about seven years ago, we did a live show called Apocalyptical that had life-size dinosaur puppets, traveled to 21 cities, super fun, but it completely broke us and we all uh, nearly died. <laughs> yes, yeah. it's true. Um, but part of that live show is a story that I reported for you guys about an asteroid that hit the Earth and put an end to the dinos. So it turns out on that day, as the fire was raging above on the surface... Somewhere in a little hole in the ground happened to be a furry little animal. And about how after the cataclysm, this mammal, small little mammal, crawled out of its little muddy burrow into a dinoless world and became the... Etc. Grandma, of everybody in this room, it is true, there was a creature down there. (laughs) 
there was a creature down there. I thought we should stop there because <laughs> we were getting away with something and I didn't want to push it too far. All of a sudden, it was just you and me. Yeah, though. Um, <laughs> oh, Miss Robert. I know. <sighs> Anyhow, uh, continue. The story goes like this. With dinosaurs out of the way, the idea is that mammals crawled out of the hole and they just inherited the Earth. So big reptiles out, crafty little mammals in. Yep. But there is a new idea about this fungal friend of ours, this one we've been talking about, that sort of messes this story up a little bit. So here we are in the realm of hypothesis, speculation. We don't really know what happens uh, 65 million years ago or 100 million years ago. The idea comes from this doctor and microbiologist, Arturo Casadevall, at Johns Hopkins University. And he says the first few beats of our story are all good. Right. We know that there was a catastrophe. The asteroid hit the Yucatan, and we know that the Earth had a really bad day. And the animals that then follow are is the age of mammals. Yeah, because I feel so, like we like took down all those dinosaurs, and there was a big hole, and we're like, ah. And we <laughs> crawled out of yeah, it. Yeah, I think that people thought that, you know, because the dinosaurs were wiped out, that it created a space. This is absolutely what I think. Right. So there is a little bit of a problem with, in my mind with <laughs> okay. that. And I, I, and, I, and, I, and I add that this is my problem. <laughs> but I'll, I'll show you what the thinking is. If you look at our world today, we still have reptiles crocodile-infested riverbank. We, we have alligators. This is a gaboon viper from West Africa. We have lizards. A monitor lizard is out hunting, looking for the entrance to the galleries in which the mammals take shelter during the daylight hours. So clearly, some reptiles survived the catastrophe. There were rep- reptilian creatures that were living in the you know, riverbank in the same way that the mammals were and got out of the fires and the ash and came out. And it's always bothered me how come we didn't have a second reptilian age? So you actually have a moment when either of them could have taken the crown. I thought the idea was that just we got we got lucky. I mean, we would have had to be really lucky uh, because according to Arturo, reptiles had two big advantages over us straight out the gates. First one being... Reptiles, in contrast to mammals, don't need that much food. Which, you know, is great because at the time, most of the plants had burned up, the planet was covered in ash. There really wasn't that much food. And whereas mammals have to eat all the time, like reptiles can just chill for a while. So that's definitely a win for reptiles over mammals. They also reproduce a lot faster. The second one is that they just make more babies. They can spread a lot faster. Their chances of survival are greater. So Arturo's like... If the reptiles are able to do well with less food and they reproduce faster, why didn't they just take off and create a whole new world, which is uh, reptilian too. Now, his idea for why this didn't happen, why there wasn't a second reptilian age, is that there is another player on the dino-free stage. Hmm. A small, invisible, yet powerful player. And to understand, you have to know that before the asteroid hit... It was a, it was a forested planet that uh, there was, in fact, a lot warmer than it is today. There were forests in many parts of the world. Mm-hmm. The cataclysm is thought to have have led to rapid temperatures that fell. And you also had no sun. So imagine a dark, cold world of decaying vegetation. This cataclysm was associated with a massive proliferation of fungi. 
And actually, if you look at, like, the right above the KT boundary, that line that demarks, you know, no meteor, meteor, dinosaur, no dinosaur. Yeah. If you look right above there, it's the soil is filled with spores. No And so everyone knows, it's really well documented that Wait, it so was... Wait, so as a layer after the impact? Yes. There is a layer, one or two up, which is filled with fungi spores? Yes. That's and so he said it's very well known that there was fungus growing on things that got burnt. Fungus probably just growing because it's wet and damp and why not? So there's mold and mushrooms everywhere. There's also dead bodies. There's like things decomposing. Which fungus like? They love, I've heard, at parties. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it looks like you have have a couple of shrew-like creatures walking around. You've You've got some alligators. But you've got a crap load of fungus. And you've got a crap load of fungus. Fun, fungus. Fun, is yeah. it fungi? Fun- fungi? Fungi? <laughs> is it a fungi or is it a <laughs> fungi? Probably what, fungi? I would say whatever you like. No, probably whatever you tell no, me. No, seriously. Okay. Uh, some people pronounce it fungi. Some people pronounce fungi. Okay. Or fungi. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, whatever you call it. If you are an animal, a reptile, or a mammal, fungi can be deadly. That's right. And while reptiles could skip meals and make a bunch of babies, when it came to fending off fungi, we had an advantage. We have two pillars to protect us. One of them is that we have advanced immunity. The immune system is obviously like the kung fu fighter. It really takes up like the weight of keeping something out. But the other thing that we have that frogs don't have and the trees don't have and that insects don't have is that we're really hot relative to the environment. We're warm. We're warm-blooded. Mammals actually use some of their energy to keep their bodies warm. So if you think about us, it could be really cold outside, it could be really hot outside, but we stay at a steady, basically 98.6. Now, if you're fungi, you actually like it kind of cold. They do very well until about 30 degrees. Like 86 degrees Fahrenheit. Right. Any hotter than that? It could denature them irreversibly. Their proteins start to fall apart, the cells start to melt. And so if a post-apocalyptic fungi got into a post-apocalyptic, very warm mammal, it would die. These high temperature creates, you know, a heat barrier. And this heat barrier means that the majority of fungal species out there cannot grow or replicate inside your body because you're too warm. Our heat keeps the fungus out. You got it. If you are a reptile, you're cold-blooded. You don't have a way to keep yourself, like, steady and warm. You have to go look for ways to become warm. You know, have you ever seen lizards lie on rocks? You know, where they're just, like, out in the sun, soaking up the heat? Sure. So that will warm their bodies up. Um, But also, and I never knew this, it also will clear, like, fungus from their body. Oh. So if they're sick, because it warms them up so much— that warmth attacks the fungus. Do they not do fevers? They don't. They can't do fevers. So oh, their, wow. their way of getting as hot as possible is doing that sunscape thing. Oh, I know. So he was saying that if you're a reptile and you get a fungus, but there's no sun to warm yourself in because, because the apocalypse has just happened. Right. Kicked up the dust, blocked out the sun, nuclear winter. Mm-hmm. So you die because you can't withhold the fungus. But if you're a mammal, the fungus comes, your body temperature naturally kills it. And so suddenly, his theory goes. 
Interesting. You have mammals filling the hole and really flourishing in a way they never did before because fungus helped them do the mammalian explosion. Right, because we are, we went through this fungal filter, uh, and therefore we are not a fungal filter at the end of the Cretaceous. Wow. Now it gets even weirder because then Arturo decided he wanted to find out if you are warm-blooded. What was the optimal temperature? by which you get the most protection against the fungi, and yet you don't have to eat all the time. And what is the what optimal temperature to keep us from eating all the time, but still give us defense? The reason we eat three meals a day is to stay warm and functioning. Mm. If we were less warm, we could eat less. No, so it's like, how little can we eat and still be protected against fungus and Yes. Stuff. That's correct. And what Aviv did... And so what Arturo did was he got together with this mathematical biologist, Aviv Bergman, and first they just gathered some numbers. What is the temperature susceptibility of fungi? Like, most fungi don't like it above 86 degrees Fahrenheit. And then he looked at the well-known formulas for calorie use. And then he asked the question, if you put these two formulas together... What is the best temperature that keeps out most fungi but doesn't require you to have to eat all the time? They basically crunched a number that had to do with, like, how many calories you need a day and, like, like just, like, the energy that would take of mm. eating and then keeping out pathogens. And what he found was that our temperature— 98.6. —is that temperature that best balances— protection against the fungi versus the need to 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 eat food. Whoa. Bing, bing, bing. We, we were amazed and tickled by it. And so, He's saying the reason you know, our bodies are precisely 98.6 degrees is because of fungus? Like they shaped us to be that? My heart wants to say yes, but to caveat, he did say it could be totally correlational. Right. Obviously, he's not been able to take the temperature of any of our ancient ancestors. But, you know, it is a very interesting idea that part of being a mammal is about being good at fending off fungi. Unless part of that equation changes. Which it will after the break. This is Miranda Ballard calling from Nampa, Idaho. Radio Lab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Science reporting on Radio Lab is supported in part by Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Radio Lab is supported by Babbel. Sometimes self-improvement can feel like a pretty overwhelming journey. So what if this year you just got a tiny bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app with quick 10-minute lessons that have been handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. You can learn everything you need to have real-world conversations, café s'il vous plaît, from vocabulary words to culture and more. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, 
imagine what you could do in a few months or a full year. Here is a special limited time deal for Radiolab listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash Radiolab. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash Radiolab, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Radiolab. Rules and restrictions may apply. Radiolab is supported by Betterment. Let's talk about hustle culture. You know, the whole rise and grind, go big or go home thing. It's a lifestyle that may not be for you, but one that your money can handle thanks to Betterment. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. How? Their automated technology optimizes your investments again and again. With Betterment, your money is taking ice baths at 5 a.m. while you get your well-deserved rest. Your money downs protein smoothies and automatically reinvests your dividends all before you head out the door. Your money is a workaholic, but you don't have to be because you've got Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is Radio Lab. I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Molly Webster. Okay, where we left off, uh, you told us the startling fact that our bodies may have chosen 98.6 degrees to fend off fungus. But then you said, somewhat ominously, that is unless the equation changes, which it will. <laughs> yeah. So this brings us, some might say finally, back to our medical mystery, which is that Arturo wonders what if, in light of this dino-mammal fungus detente, this thing that seems new, Candida auris, has actually been here the whole time. So say these fungi typically live outdoors in soil and on rocks. And they live in a place that's like, you know, normally 75 degrees. It's Hawaii. You want, okay. Let's say Hawaii because they're okay. big into uh, mushrooms okay. there. Their ideal temperature is 77 degrees. And if they go above that, they start to feel a little queasy, really start to fade, and it's a struggle. All right. Okay, so one day, it's 81 degrees. And like the fungus are like, oh, fuck, this is hot. All fungi have the capacity to tolerate short bursts of heat. But, you can but what if the 81 degrees lasts for many days, not just one? A heat challenge. In that case, most of the fungus would die. But the more 81-degree days there are, the greater the chances that in the Russian roulette of evolution, one day you would get a fungus who's like, you know what? I think I feel pretty okay. And the reason that fungus probably feels that way is because it has like a mutation of some sort. That give it the capacity to survive the heat. Maybe it can even fight a little harder. Turning on some of the defense mechanisms like heat shock proteins. However it does it, this one fungus lives. 
and then it creates a copy of itself. And then that fungus has fungus babies. What is called a bud. And then that bud has buds. So the original cell may make 50 copies of itself before it basically runs out of juice to make any more, but those 50... And so suddenly you have a whole batch of fungus that survive at 81 degrees. Yeah, okay. And then after that, you take the survivors and you expose them to 90 degrees. Let them sweat it out, and then boom, you got a whole batch at 90 degrees. You got it. And you can just keep bumping this up degree by degree. Exactly. A string of 91-degree days, 92-degree days, 93-degree days, 94-degree days. 95 degrees. 96 degrees, 97 degrees, 98 degrees, and ultimately 98.6 degrees. Now you have the capacity to survive inside the body of a human. It reminds me of water. Like if you're water and you go from 34 to 33, you're still water. And 33 to 32, you're still water. But there's this seemingly insignificant threshold between 32 to 31 that when you cross it, you become ice. And it is this almost minute transition that Arturo thinks happened with Candida auris. That it was out there living in the environment, and it gradually adapted to be able to grow a higher temperature. And, it, and when it did that, it acquired the capacity then to cause disease in people. Essentially, it, its adaptation defeated our heat defenses. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So fungus are being trained by the rising temperatures, and they're adapting along with those rising temperatures. You got it. And then, and then suddenly it's not that far from, like, you know, a, uh, that fungus in a soil getting caught on somebody's shoe who walks it into a town that then goes into a hospital. Into an IV line, it can get into a wound, and then it can colonize patients. Huh. That would explain why candida happened in all those places simultaneously. It was always in those places, being tracked in on boots into hospitals, but only now— it gets tracked in with this new ability to live in us? Yes. Wow. Japan is suffering its hottest day on record. A city and this is an interesting thing. Like, like, all of a sudden it made me think about all the headlines you see around the world. Even in India, it's rarely been this hot. About, like, the country has been experiencing a deadly heat wave with dry air far hotter than the human body. It's the it's the tenth straight day above 105 degrees in New in Delhi. All across mm. the West, you know, or it's like it was another day of oppressive heat. Idaho's having the hottest August on record. Funerals were underway in Karachi on Friday for some of the victims of the scorching heat wave. You know, many people say when you tell them about this, but how how can that be? You know, they say that the average warmth it may be one degree centigrade. This is a so-called cooling station in Las Vegas. I say that's not the right way to think about it. The right way to think about it is to imagine triple-digit temperatures, the number of really hot days, because each hot day is a hoop you got to jump through. And then just one last dash of interesting in looking at all this, like, fungus temperature stuff. Just as the fungus are learning to jump through our hoops, it turns out we are actually making it easier for them. What do you mean? So there was this paper recently that was talking about how 
the human body temperature has been declining. It's been steadily declining for decades at a rate of like 0.05 degrees Fahrenheit per decade. Really? Yeah. So we're not 98.6 anymore? What are we? They think it's actually more around like 97.5. But in fact, Interesting. What do you get that a lot when you measure your kids? Yeah. I'm always like, oh, you're, you're not, you're not, you're colder. The one thing that the researchers were talking about, though, in the declining is that they looked at Western records. But, you know, they say, well, they did a small study on people in Pakistan and they were more around 98.6. Mm. And the researchers were talking about how, essentially how hard your body has to work to stay healthy and consequently the healthcare system that you're in is what is like affecting the temperature decline. So I don't think they think it's like worldwide. I think it's a, it's like a developed country, Western kind of thing. I see. So in countries where there's more advanced healthcare, you're going to see internal body temps start to lower. Basically, yeah. Wow. So essentially, in sum, <laughs> there is, you know, this head-to-head between fungus and us. And it is a very fine line going from being insignificant to, you know, king or queen of the castle. Many organisms that you recover from the environment can only grow at environmental temperatures. But some of them have the, it's a whole range of temperature susceptibilities or temperature resistance. That's a better way, an easier way to put it. And some of them happen to, their maximum happens to be just below your temperatures. And these are the ones that we worry about because many of them may have the capacity to cause disease, but they cannot do it because they cannot survive the higher temperatures. Wait, what are the other ones that are just below my 98.6? Well, there are probably... Uh, I, I don't want to be alarmist, but there are probably in the in the in the, um, in the hundreds of thousands or even in the millions. <laughs> I, don't I mean, I don't want to be alarmist either, but now I want to know what's like what's like marching at my heels. Yeah, right. Wow, that's just so weird. Like, out of all the things that climate change can do to me, I was not thinking about like it's warming up microbes on the sidewalk, and they're like, ah, oh, finally, I can crawl into a human. <laughs> <laughs> this is the moment we've been waiting for for millions of years. It's some image, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, Molly, um, thank you, I guess, for just giving me one more thing to have nightmares about. Sure. Um, I am always happy to seed your fears. <laughs> this story was, of course, pr- reported by Molly Webster, produced by Molly with Bethel Hopte, production help from Tad Davis. Special thanks to Luisa Strosky. Until next time, I'm Jad Abumrad. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Katie from Boulder, Colorado. Radio Lab is created by Jad Abumrad with Robert Krolwich and produced by Thor and Wheeler. Dylan Keith is our director of sound design. Susie Lechtenberg is our executive producer. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Jeremy Bloom, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, David Gebel, Bethel Habsey, Tracy Hunt, Matt Kielty, Tobin Lowe, Annie McEwen, Latif Nassar, Sarah Kari, Ariane Wack, 
Pat Walters and Molly Webster, with help from Shima Oliali, Sarah Sandbach, and Russell Gregg. Our fact checker is Michelle Harris. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast.